0: Ephesians 2, let Let's pray this morning together. Heavenly Father, your loving kindness is better than life. We take that to mean that through the cross, being in the presence of the living God is better even than life itself, better even than the necessities of life, better than breathing, better than eating, better than anything that we do that brings us pleasure and enjoyment. Being in the presence of God is better than. We pray that we would realize that this morning, and as a result of that realization, our lips would praise you today. We believe your word and we sit under its authority and we pray that you would speak to us through it with authority by your Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. We want to know more of you, Lord, and we want to worship you in a greater, more deeper way as a result of it. We love you, Jesus, in your name, amen. There's a picture on the screen of an elderly Cambodian man. His name is Kankekyu. You probably have never seen him and you probably don't know who he is, but among Cambodians, he's more easily recognized and remembered by his military term, Comrade Dutch. You might be familiar with the Khmer Rouge regime. This was a regime that was in power in Cambodia in the late 70s, in the last four years of the 1970s. In Cambodia, under the leadership of Pol Pot, who had a desire in his heart, his sick and wicked, twisted heart, to chase people out of the cities out of the schools, out of their jobs, and pushed them into the hills to create some type of a society which would be based off of his own dreams, peasants and farmers. He wanted to start over, and he wanted to make a name for himself. In the process of Pol Pot's dreams, two million people were murdered in one of the worst genocides in the history of humanity. those that opposed him or those that he thought opposed him were rounded up, imprisoned, and tortured relentlessly for information that benefited his regime. Whether that information was correct or false because of torture, they divulged whatever information the military wanted to get out of them and immediately were marched into the killing fields where they were forced to dig their own graves and bludgeon to death. Very few people escaped the prisons of Cambodia during this time. One of the worst prison camps at that time was called S-21. It saw the torture and the genocide of over 17,000 people, mostly Cambodians. The man that you're looking at right now, Comrade Dutch, was the man responsible for S-21. He himself admitted to being personally responsible for at least 12,000 deaths. This morning, we need a deeper understanding of the grace of God. And by deeper understanding, I don't mean I want us to leave the service this morning with a kind of a clever definition of what grace is. You know what I mean. I I open my study Bible, I see what grace is, and I look at the bottom at the footnotes and it says something like undeserved favor or unmerited uh, kindness. Those are all true, but... I'm not looking for a definition that's clever or easy to remember, I'm looking for a deeper understanding. I want to leave church this morning with a deeper understanding of what it means for God to have grace upon a sinner. Three things will result from a deeper understanding of grace. One is deeper worship. Two is more fervent mission. And three, you'll just want to sin less. For this, we're going to look to Paul. Paul explains this beautifully in Ephesians chapter 2, and he does it in a unique way. He explains grace by putting it up against the backdrop of our sin. Let's start in verse 1, and we'll read through the three verses. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, he says, You are dead in your trespasses and sins. In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among them too we all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. What Paul is doing in Ephesians chapter 2, at least in the nine verses that we have ahead of us, is he's got two sections The first section, he's going to speak about humanity and the condition of humanity, and it doesn't really look good for humanity. Then he's going to transist into a description about God and God's act and involvement in saving lost humanity. But right now, in the first three verses, he's speaking about people, he's speaking about us. And Paul doesn't beat around the bush. The first words out of his mouth, you were dead spiritually dead you were dead there was no life there was no spiritual life or righteousness in you you were dead in your sins and in your trespasses and I find it to be my inclination I don't know if you can relate to this but I find my inclination to be to look to people like this the comrade duchess of the world the corrupt CEOs the ill politicians and the the, the professional sports stars that have fallen And to point the finger at them so quickly and say, that's a big sinner. That's the poster child for all the immorality and the injustice in the world. I find it to be my inclination to look at professional golfers. Who have quote unquote fallen from grace and in my sick and twisted heart to say, that is the reason for immorality. That's the, that's the reason. Oh, if only, if only the sports stars were just a little better at being role models, then my kids would be okay. Paul has a different perspective. While we're pointing fingers, Paul is pointing the finger at us. And he says, You are dead. We're the poster children for injustice. And by us, I mean anybody that's born. Everyone in this church, apart from grace, is the poster child for injustice. Paul certainly doesn't skimp around with words. We're dead. We were walking in sin and trespasses. We were following the world. We were following Satan. In verse 3, he says, we're living in the passions of our flesh, the desires of our body, and the desires of our mind. And right there, flesh, body, mind, he takes in the whole person. It says, you're radically depraved. You're sinful apart from God. Look at the last line that Paul says. He says, by nature, you are children of wrath, even as the rest. Now, I don't know if that makes sense, but there's not really anything worse you can be than a child of the wrath of God. For the wrath of God to rightfully rest upon you because of your sin, to rest upon me, there's not a lot worse you can get than that. And it's not like humanism teaches today. It's not like we were born decent or we were born somewhat okay and then we sinned and we messed up along the way. No, Paul says, by nature, you are children of wrath. Chris Lazo, by nature, you are children of wrath. It's the same thing that the psalmist said. From our womb, from the womb of our mothers, we were born into iniquity. We didn't have to sin, even though we will sin because we're sinners. We were born into sin. And notice that Paul says, by nature, you are children of wrath, even as the rest. That means there is an equal ground that we stand upon. People like Comrade Dutch may take it to an extreme. Maybe in our hearts we're saying, wait a minute, I'm not like that. I don't commit adultery. I don't murder. I don't steal. I'm actually a pretty good guy. I, I mean, I know I sin, but I'm not that bad. Paul isn't saying that we're the same in practice. There's there's some people that will take their sin to the farthest conclusion. What Paul is saying is that by nature, we're the same. And by nature, we need the same amount of help. Paul's done talking about people, and in verse four, he starts talking about God, and this is where it gets good. He says in verse four, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loves us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast." Paul now, after describing the condition of sinful humanity, is describing the saving nature of a great God. And everything that he says from here on out, raised us up with him, made us alive together, seated us. This is all speaking about the salvation of a sinner. And all of this, this description of salvation by Paul, hinges upon one phrase. It's in verse 5. By grace you have been saved. Everything that we see from verse 4 all the way through verse 9 happens by grace. Salvation happens by grace, Amen? amen? Salvation happens by grace. Now, what I am trying to figure out is what in the world grace means. I know what my mom told me when I was a kid. I know what it says in my study Bible, but I want to understand it. If the conversion of a traitor... To a child of the living God happens by grace. I want to know what grace is. Paul does that for us too. I personally need a working definition of grace. Meaning, I want to understand it. I don't want a cliche. I want something that I could sink my teeth into and fall at the feet of God to worship as a response. The problem, at least, that I personally have is that I lose the reality behind words like this. I need a working definition. Have you noticed this about Christianity? We have some words. Trinity and incarnation and justification and sanctification and glorification and a whole bunch of other occasions. And these aren't words that you just use on a day-to-day basis. I don't use these words in the laundry matter at the grocery store. You know what I mean. And my whites got so much whiter. This Tide Ultra Safe Bleach is so sanctifying to my clothing. <laughs> I'm glad that my black socks and my white shirts and my red underwear didn't trinitarianize together in the wash. <laughs> we don't use these phrases except for when we're speaking about God. Because God does things that are different than what we do. He is otherworldly. He's different. And I think it's so awesome and so fascinating that we need a new vocabulary to describe the bigness of God. Hence, words like justification, trinity, incarnation, grace. But here's the problem. If we grow familiar with the word and not its meaning, all we really end up with are tired phrases that mean nothing to us. We want a reality. I think Paul does that in Ephesians chapter 2. Starts by giving us characteristics of grace, starting in verse 4. Keep in mind, this is the description of salvation which happens by grace. In verse 4, he says, God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. God is rich in mercy. So in other words, God who saves us by grace is rich in mercy. It's safe to say that grace by which we're saved stems from God's mercy. Grace stems from his mercy. In verse 4, we're told that it's because of his great love with which he loves us. So it would be safe to say that God's grace is grounded in his love. So God's grace stems from his mercy, it's grounded in his love. Look at verse 5. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, that means the grace of God is resolute. That means grace does not care that you're a sinner. Grace is unaffected by your deadness. You were dead. Grace is unaffected by your deadness. It's resolute. Verse five He made us alive together with Christ. We see that there's some aspect of life giving and renewing that happens to a dead sinner to where they're made alive. This happens by grace. Look at verse six He raised us up with Him. When I was growing up, I had no connotation what the grace of God meant, and for me, I just kind of attached my own definition to it, grace. It sounded really fairy-tale-ish, and I knew it was good, and I knew I needed it, but for me, I knew it had something to do with the undeserved favor of God, but I didn't know that word favor. To me, it was like God was patting me on the back. So when I thought of grace, I thought of God patting me on the back. Or maybe he like sprinkled some dust on me and made me, you know, wooed. The Holy Spirit wooed me. That's not the picture that Paul gives to grace. You were raised up. You were dead. Just as dead as Lazarus was in the grave. Jesus didn't walk into the grave and woo a dead man. You ever try to woo a dead man? Jesus stepped into Lazarus' business and by the power of the Holy Spirit raised a dead man to life. And that's what happens to a sinner. Grace then is not passive. Grace is active and powerful. And I'd like to throw in there compelling. Verse 6, He seated us with Him, again, by grace. Being seated by the living God speaks of your approval. It means you're approved by God. So here's what we know so far about the characteristics of grace. Grace stems from his mercy. It's grounded in his love. It's resolute. It's life-giving. It's active, compelling, and powerful, and it causes sinners to be approved by a holy God. Now my tiny definition of grace is starting to fill out. Now, keep in mind, this is just from four or five verses from Ephesians. Grace is intertwined throughout the entire Bible. You could study it for the rest of your lives. We should. From Genesis to Revelation, God is a God of grace, and you get that picture. All we're doing is looking at these few verses. So, if I were to be asked by someone, what's the grace of God? And I had to give them an answer just from this text before us. This isn't an exhaustive list, but if someone were to ask me, based on this text, I would have to say, grace is when God, in his compassion, actively, unswervingly turns you back from the chosen course of your deserved destruction, and he brings you to himself. For God to show grace upon a sinner means that in his compassion, he actively, unswervingly turns you back from the chosen course of your deserved destruction and brings you to himself. So I guess what my mom told me was true. It's getting what you don't deserve. What I did deserve was hell. What I got was a lot better. But you see how that cliche fills out a little more when you apply scripture to it. Grace is awesome. Grace is unbelievable. If it's still not connecting quite yet, let me put it this way. Let's say for, an, uh, for a moment you're $100,000 in debt. Because you're $100,000 in debt and you can't pay off your debt, the bank took away your, ha- your house, took away your car, and put you on the street. So now you're $100,000 in debt, you're homeless, you're broke, you're poor, you're starving, and now you have the threat of prison hanging over your head. You're in trouble. But because it's your debt, you deserve everything that's falling on you. Now let's say, for example, someone comes along and with the good heart that they have, they get a hold of your credit card statement, they pay off $100,000 of your credit card debt. That's good. So now you don't have the threat of prison hanging over your head, and you don't have a debt. That's an act of mercy, right? You deserve to pay off the debt, and if you couldn't pay off the debt, you deserve to go to prison for it. An act of mercy was that person coming along and taking care of your debt. Now the threat of prison is no longer hanging over your head, and you don't have to pay a debt that you deserve to pay. Notice, however, that while you're debt-free, you're still broke. You're not going to prison anymore, but you're broke, you're homeless, you're poor, you're starving, and you'll probably die anyway. But mercy is good, you don't have a debt. Now let's say after that someone comes along. And after you've been made debt-free, they get a hold of your routing number, and they credit to your bank account $5 million, and they buy you a house. That's not mercy. That's grace. Grace is getting beyond what you deserve. And so it is with a sinner who deserves hell and the wrath of God for what they did. Jesus Christ dies on the cross for your sins and as far as the east is from the west so your sin is removed though your sin is a scarlet now it's made white as snow you're forgiven that's an act of mercy Jesus forgave your sins but don't you know you can't stand in the presence of a completely righteous and holy God debt free but broke Because at that point, even by mercy, you're debt-free, you don't have a debt to pay, and you're not going to suffer in hell under the wrath of God, but you're not going to be in the presence of God either, because you don't have a righteousness of your own. But praise God, do you know what Jesus Christ was doing on this earth for 30 years, besides healing the sick and raising the dead? He was obeying perfectly the law of His Father. In his humanity, he was accumulating righteousness so that when he died on the cross for your sins, he wouldn't just forgive your sins and take away your debt. He took away your debt and he credited to your account righteousness. And that's the difference between mercy and grace. Mercy means God forgives you of your sin. Grace means after he's forgiven you, he approves of you because you're not just debt-free and broke, you're debt-free and rich in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that's why it says in Romans chapter 5, verse 19, through the disobedience of Adam, many were made sinful, but through the obedience of Jesus Christ, many were made righteous. And you got to understand that that righteousness covers you. You stand in the presence of the living God. You are approved. Do you know what that means? You're approved by God. But you got to understand that approval does not come from yourself. Three times in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. So grace means God takes traitors and he makes them his beloved children. Now, if that's not crazy enough, let me throw this out there. What makes this transaction even more bizarre is that God does this at the expense of His beloved Son. Now I know we're used to hearing this in church all the time, but just for a moment, just think about that for a second. He takes traitors, He makes them His beloved children at the expense of His beloved Son. Why, why would God do that? I have some friends at this church. I have some friends at this church with kids. I know they love me. I know they'd hang out with me. Perhaps they'd buy me a pizza. But would you sacrifice your kid on my behalf? I hope not. That's weird. That's bizarre. God sacrifices his beloved son to make traitors his children. Now, our immediate response, because we're used to questions like this, is to say, well, because God loves us. Yes, he loves us, but that's not the point. Why? And does he not love his most beloved son? His firstborn from creation? Jesus, the son who's been with him since the beginning... From all eternity, does he not love his most beloved son more than anything and anyone? Why would he sacrifice his most beloved son for anyone else? Paul tells us in verse 7. It's so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace it's so God can show off his grace it's so he can display the immeasurable riches of his grace towards traitors And in verse 8, he caps it off just to make sure that we understand. He says, there is no boasting on your end. You see, God has so masterminded the salvation of the sinner that at the end of our salvation, we can display nothing but his infinite worth. God finds great joy in taking sinners that hate him, opening their eyes to see his beauty and causing them to fall in love with him. Friends, grace is awesome. Grace is incredible. You could spend your entire life searching the scriptures, learning more about the sovereign grace of God. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, we know the scriptures so well by grace we have been saved. In our English Bibles, it's put forward in the past tense. By grace, you have been saved. And so we come away thinking, oh, grace is something that we needed before when we gave our lives to Jesus Christ. We don't need it anymore. We're being sanctified now. We don't need grace anymore. Actually, Paul was very clear in the original languages. What he would have said literally, this is the, the tone and tenor of his sentence. He would have said, by grace, you have been and continue to be. Saved by grace. That's exactly what he said. Do you know what that means? That means Chris Slazo is just as dependent on grace as he was when he was a ridiculous sinner. That means even in this church, the most seasoned saint is dependent and should take great joy in the grace of the living God. This is the kind of stuff that fuels passion for worship like no other. Martin Luther once said If I am ignorant of God's works and power, I am ignorant of God Himself. And if I do not know God, I cannot worship, praise, give thanks, or serve Him, for I do not know how much I should attribute to myself and how much to Him. Our inclination, unless we're told otherwise, is to attribute as much to ourselves as possible. That's just what we do. But grace shreds to pieces every inkling of self-love and points your attention to the infinite worth of Jesus Christ. You come away from it boasting in the grace of God and falling more in love with His beauty. It's this kind of grace that fans the flame of fervency for world mission. Mission in contact, Missio Christi. Here's something I've noticed about myself. I respond very quickly to statistics, you know what I mean. When I hear from the pulpit or online or in books just heartbreaking statistics about people that are suffering, I do respond. For example, I hear that in Ventura there are over 8,000 homeless men and women right now. In the past year, over two dozen of them have died from cold. When I hear that, my heart breaks. When I hear that most people in the world, over 70% of the people in the world live on less than $2 a day, I feel bad about what I have. All of a sudden, I have too much. And so I go out and I help as many people as I can, but do you see the motivation behind that? It's guilt. I feel bad about me. Guilt is a poor motivator. Grace is the best motivator. And here's the problem with what I just described. In the end, I'm not on mission for the glory of God. I'm on mission to satisfy my own guilt. After which, I'll go back to all the stuff I have and feel better about myself because of my good deed for the day. That's humanistic at best. Friends, grace shatters humanism. Humanism and pride and self-love can't breathe in the presence of the grace of God. Last, understanding grace and its effect on your life will just make you want to sin less. Again, not because you're guilty, because you love Jesus. If you love me, you'll obey my commandments, Jesus said. It's reported that in 1996, Comrade Dutch gave his life to Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. And in an instant, a tyrant, his whole world was turned upside down. Now notice, the grace of God, God's mercy, doesn't mean that sins go unpunished Dutch committed some sins I committed some sins it doesn't mean that God sweeps your sins under the rug oh he punishes sin God is a just God and every sin will be accounted for what it means for the person that puts their faith in Jesus Christ like comrade Dutch is that his sins got transferred to somebody else What it means is that what Comrade Dutch did, mercilessly killing tens of thousands of people, the wrath that he deserved for that got poured out in its ferocity upon he who knew no sin, Jesus Christ the righteous. Brothers and sisters, when you and I sin, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, our sin got accounted for on the person of Jesus Christ. When the wrath of God was poured out upon his beloved son, instead of us. Why? To show off his grace. We're told in Ephesians, God does this to put his grace on display that the universe might marvel at it. Friends, are you marveling at the grace of God? I find this very ironic. People that know that they're bad sinners, quote-unquote, like Comrade Dutch, are the ones that seem to be most easily recognizing of their need for God's grace. It's really people like me, maybe some of us in here, that consider ourselves to be less sinful, that will react less passionately to grace. Grace. I want to close this morning with one last text. If you can, turn quickly to Luke chapter 7, verse 40. Big sinners react passionately to grace. And it seems that religious people react less passionately. Jesus is about to explain why. Give you a little background. Jesus got invited to a house party by a Pharisee. Pharisee's name was Simon. At this house party, a prostitute crashed the party, made a beeline for Jesus, as prostitutes often did. And this prostitute fell at the feet of Jesus and wept tears and wiped his feet with her tears and poured perfume on him and kissed his feet. And the Pharisee, Simon, was disgusted, as Pharisees often were, And in Simon's thought, and in Simon's heart, he saw Jesus and he thought to himself, Jesus, you ain't no prophet. If you were a prophet, you would know what kind of woman is touching you that's a hooker. And if you were a prophet like you say that you are, you would know what kind of woman that's touching you that a prostitute is touching you, and you would be disgusted like I'm disgusted. I'm disgusted. And Jesus Christ, being far more than a prophet, brothers and sisters, saw the heart of Simon and responds in verse 40. Jesus answered to him and said, Simon, I have something to say to you. Simon replied, say it, teacher. Jesus said, a money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and another 50. When they were unable to repay... He graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. Jesus said to him, You have judged correctly. Turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. She has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he was forgiven little loves little. Friends, if I may be so bold... What I, what some of us, like Simon the Pharisee, have failed to see is that all of us are guilty of massive crimes against a holy, righteous, perfect God. That some carry out their sins to farther extents than the rest of us means nothing in the sight of a perfect God. We will all stand and give an account, and all have fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. But of those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ and have been saved, it's the ones who recognize their filth against the backdrop of God's holiness that seem to treasure God's grace the most. And God loves doing that. He loves putting his grace on display. This morning, if you are an outsider to Christianity, meaning you have never made a commitment to follow after Jesus Christ, scripture puts it way simple, so I'm not gonna make it any more complicated than it is. Scripture says, repent. Repent of your sins, repent of your faulty worldview, repent of the things that you were chasing, repent of money, repent of everything that you used to love and follow after Jesus. You're not promised riches. You're not promised a good life. You're not promised ease. You're not promised a bed of roses. What you are promised is God Himself. And you may suffer in this life, but the prize at the end of this life is Jesus Christ. If that's something you want, repent of your sins, confess Jesus as Lord, and follow Him for the rest of your life. I'm assuming the rest of us are Christians meaning we have put our faith and our commitment in Jesus Christ to us. During worship this morning, I would just say examine our heart. I don't know your heart, but you do and God does. Examine your heart against the backdrop of God's holiness and fall in love with his grace. For some of you, I mean this with as much kindness as I possibly can utter. For some of you, that's going to be hard. And it may be because of pride or a hint of self-righteousness or a feeling that you're superior, or maybe not even superior, but just better than. God wants to put grace on display in your life and humble you to the dust and cause you to fall more in love with him than you ever were before. But for you, you might have to do a couple things. You might have to submit to the spirit of God. And maybe for you, that means you're doing things that you didn't used to do before. Maybe you actually engage with the Lord during worship this morning. The prostitute made a beeline for Jesus when the Pharisees were standing up parting. Je- Jesus gave his full attention to the prostitute who fell at his feet and wept tears. Maybe some of you need to weep tears of joy when you realize that Jesus Christ saved you all by himself. The prostitute wept and kissed his feet. You know, in the New Testament, whenever an apostle or a writer spoke of worship, they used a peculiar word. They used the Greek word proskuneo. It means literally to kiss. And it has in mind a lowly, undeserving peasant kissing the hand of their king. Some of you have never hit the carpets. Maybe you just need to get out of your chair and engage with the king. Maybe you, like the prostitute, need to kiss your king whatever your status and condition is, by the grace of God, be humble to the dust. God loves you and God enjoys you. During worship this morning, by the grace of God, enjoy your God. Heavenly Father, we bow our hearts and we bend our knees We recognize what the psalmist said, that out of your hand flows everything. The pleasures, our delights, every good and perfect thing comes from our Father in heaven. Pray this morning that you would shatter the shell of self-righteousness. Pray, Lord, that you would remove the shell of religion, all of those things that just love to get in the way of our relationship with God. Lord, you died on the cross to turn the world upside down, and to bring sinners to you. We pray this morning you would remove obstacles and you would bring sinners to you. We love you. In Jesus' name.